Father, it is an astounding reality to consider that the Lord of armies would invite us into your presence. That we would have anything to say to you that would be pleasing. We who are marred in sin, in a sin-drenched world, that we could approach a holy God as nothing but a sheer act of your grace. And for that, we are thankful. We count it a joy today to speak to you and now to hear you speak to us. We ask that your kindness would continue to us as we sit under your word, that it would have its good and due and proper effect in our lives in convicting us of sin, in lifting up Christ that we would see him clearly, and in calling us to obedience. We ask that you would be kind to do that today, for Christ's sake. Amen. You may have a seat. Ninety thousand three hundred and sixty. Let's say the average worker invests forty hours a week from the ages of twenty to sixty-five, getting two weeks of vacation a year. In that time, the average worker will work a cumulative total of 90,360 hours of his or her life. Five months. That's the cumulative amount of time that a mother of five will spend doing laundry in her lifetime. 90,360. Five months. Representative of this reality that we spend far too much time investing in work for it to be purposeless. Climbing the corporate ladder, dressing that little cutie in the perfect, clean, matching outfit, providing money for your family or making it to the next week-long vacation are hardly sufficient motives for such a massive amount of time. This season... Uh, is known to sports fans around as March Madness, college basketball, playing its annual tournament. The tagline for March Madness is survive and advance, premised on this reality that it doesn't really matter how poor you play, if in the final outcome you have one more point than the opponent, you survive and advance. That motto could be the tagline of the modern American worker. Survive and advance. Make it to the end of the day. 
having survived another one, and pray that you get out of bed in the morning simply to do it over again. Is there more than survive in advance as we approach this massive piece of our life called work? That's our task this morning, and we'll consider it starting in Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to play a little bit of ping pong around your Bibles this morning, so if you have one with you or on your phone, be really helpful. The words will also be on the screen behind me. If you're new to the Bible, please don't feel frustrated as we bounce around a little bit. You can simply, perhaps on a notepad in front of you, jot some of these references or even lean over to a buddy next to you to help you find the pages. Please don't be embarrassed by that. We believe that God speaks through his word, and we want you to have access to his word. The Bibles that are in the pew backs in front of you, they are not ours, they're yours. If you're here and you don't have one, please take it with you as you leave this morning. That's our gift to you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's word. In Genesis 1 and 2, we enter the story of God's created work. And at the outset, we must affirm this, God got a lot done in his first work week, right? By the word of his power, he speaks all things into existence. He fashions a world and places human image bearers within this good world. There, they are to image him to the world. And the Bible tells us how they are to accomplish this image-bearing task. The principal means by which they would accomplish this lofty goal would be the very thing we call work. In Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26, we read, God said, let us, the Trinitarian God on display at the outset of creation, God said, let us, plural, make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them, again, the seating of men and women already in the fundamental creation design, let them have these uh, human image bearers dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over the creeping things that creep on the earth. Then down to verse 28. God blessed them, And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then skip ahead one chapter to Genesis 2, verse 15. God placing man in this pristine garden. In verse 15, we're told that the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden, to work it and to keep it. So from the outset, we are going to say something that we've said about many of these topics on the wall behind me, that while the world and sin has fundamentally distorted them, they are created as good things. And this is important to affirm at the outset of a topic like work. Work is fundamentally good. It's stunning to consider that in a good world, made by the very word of God, there would still be something for mankind to do. This reveals that success in life 
is not found in free time or leisure, but in meaningful activity. Imagine God could have created a world fully formed, fully built out, fully cultivated, placed man in it, said, pull up a hammock and chill, bro. This is going to be good. Just ride it out, enjoy the cool breeze, stare at the trees. That's not what he does. He creates a world and he places man in it with a task to do. And we know that, like, intrinsically to our being, we know this to be true. Without work, people feel some sense of meaninglessness, right? Uh, I frequent local coffee shops. Uh, I hate working in my office. I love being out and about. And during that, this coffee shop becomes, on the average workday, work the hangout for 60-year-old men. Right on the other side of retirement, still in relatively good health, sitting, dwindling day after day in the same chair, reading the same paper, eating the same lukewarm breakfast sandwich, and doing the same crossword puzzle. Staring at the reality that their lives lack purpose. This is the plight of retirement, or the other side of retirement. What do I do now with all this time we see here that chilling coasting relaxing leisure is not god's design but rather it's meaningful work big words in our text here number one big word would be dominion we're put on this earth for some sense of dominion as a military general might exercise when the king is gone God places human image bearers in the garden and says rule and reign in such a way that God is put on display. Second, the word subdue. Subdue. Now, notice here, this is pre-fall. This is pre-sin entering the picture. So when, when the text tells us that they're to subdue the world, we're not talking here about holding back the evil effects of sin. That's not what we're talking about yet. But rather, there's some sense in which Man's work is going to subdue the world that God has created. And then lastly, to cultivate or to keep it, a gardening term. In some sense that man is put in the garden to harness the latent potentials of God's good world. They're to take this raw material, this raw matter that God's formed, and fashion it, cultivate it, work it in such a way that God's glory is put on display. This is the work that people are given to do. This is not simply a masculine identity, but rather we see the role of responsibility and partnership, both genders having a role to play in the work that God has placed us to do of filling the earth with his glory. All image bearers are giving meaningful work. And in light of that, they're also given rest. Sabbath rest built into the fabric of this good work as well. Mankind, these image bearers, can rest in the fact that they are not ultimately in control. God is in charge and we can trust him. Therefore, we can rest. God establishes in his created order this six-in-one rhythm of work and rest. 
Six-in-one pacing of work and rest, demonstrating that even in the created design, there is to be far more work than there is rest. Far more work than there is rest. And I'll give it to you as an aside that the average modern American doesn't know how to rest well. Let's leave that one on the table. This is not a sermon on rest, okay? I get that we don't know how to work rest well, but for today's purposes, we're speaking about work. And we must affirm at the outset that we are to work, and we are to work at least in a six-to-one pacing of what we rest, okay? Work far outpaces our rest rhythms built into the created design. How does the fall shape this, though? Turn over one chapter, perhaps one page in your Bible to Genesis 3. How does the fall shape this good work that man has placed on this earth to do? We're told in Genesis 3, beginning in verse 17, that as a result of uh, Eve's choice to eat of the fruit, giving it to her husband Adam, they are cursed. And this curse is doled out in a host of different ways, but specifically here in Genesis 3, 17, we're told that God says, Cursed would be the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, as a result of human sin, we see that work will be forever hard and often unfruitful. Hard and often unfruitful. It will require toil and strain in ways that were not intended by virtue of the created design. Sin affects our work with thorns and thistles. And these thorns and thistles don't simply demonstrate themselves in gardening, do they? Making things as a engineer making numbers or concepts do what they should thorns and thistles managing a restaurant getting employees to actually show up on time thorns and thistles making people particularly those little people we call children do what we desire thorns and thistles making me do what I'm supposed to do. Thorns and thistles. Everywhere we look, there are implications of, the sin, of sin on our work. It is hard. I remember my first job as a late middle schooler, early high schooler, spending the summer working as an electrician's helper. That means I ran to the truck and got whatever the electrician needed for a summer. I showed up my first day at 5 a.m. at the work site in a pair of umbros. I did not know that electricians did not wear umbros. Nor did I know that 5 a.m. actually existed on a clock. <laughs> By the time it was lunch break, I was, I was so tired. I cannot even quantify the amount of tired I felt. That tired demonstrated itself in the fact that I ordered two double cheeseburger plates for my first lunch meal as an electrician's helper. I was famished. All the boys around then gave me the nickname for the rest of the summer, pot roast. 
and made fun of how much I ate. Later that afternoon, when the electrician finally worked up the energy or the trust in me to give me a responsibility, I proceeded to drill straight through the outside of a new home construction, punching a hole that size through the exterior wall. For the rest of the summer, I then ran to the truck and got him tools. You should be thankful that I'm a pastor. (laughs) There's still a laundromat in Rock Hill, South Carolina, that I am stunned has not burnt to the ground by virtue of my electrician work that summer. Work is hard. It is frustrating. It is grueling. We don't know how to do it very well. And as a conclusion, the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes says what we have often said. Vanity of vanities, right? It's all vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil with which he toils under the sun? Work is hard. This is not by virtue of God's created design, but rather by virtue of the implications of sin. In whatever field you choose, it is going to be hard. The result, then, is either one of two ditches. Ditch number one would be defeat. Works hard, it stinks. Everywhere I look, there are thorns and thistles, so there's no point, nothing I do matters. It's hard, let's go watch Netflix. Right? That's one ditch that some of you are prone to. The other ditch that others of you are prone to is consumption. Pouring yourself in. If I work harder, do more, then I will overcome the effects of sin by virtue of my skill. I'll manipulate my work to accomplish the purposes that I desire out of it. Either of these paths are going to lead us down are going to lead us down a path, rather, to defining ourselves by our work. I am what I do, either a success or a failure. This is perfectly illustrated recently by the plight of Michael Jeffries. Michael Jeffries, for 22 years, was the president of Abercrombie & Fitch. When he joined the company, Abercrombie & Fitch was actually a century-old company that had outfitted people like Teddy Roosevelt and Charles Lindenberg. By the time he took over in 1988, he inherited it from the limited company. They hired Jeffries to rebrand and start the company from scratch. Jeffries did so and fashioned Abercrombie & Fitch as one of the leading retailers of teenagers and college students in the United States and, in fact, around the world. But as the company progressed, Jeffries, who's now the age of 70, tried to keep up appearances. CNN, announcing his resignation, recounts that he lifted weights barefoot in the company gym most mornings. He dyed his hair blonde and regularly visited the plastic surgeon, (laughs) according to former execs who spoke on the condition of anonymity. He wore torn Abercrombie jeans at the age of 70 and flip-flops around the woodsy campus outside of Columbus, Ohio. And he, in his loafers, dictated every decision that the company would make. 
down to the exact percentage of cologne that would be sprayed around the store, which if you've been in one of those stores, you know is far too much. In fact, his last act as president of Abercrombie was to reduce the cologne spray by 25%. I said, Michael, a bit more, but a bit lower it a little. However, Jeffries established a brand and in fact embodied a brand that he was unwilling to change. And over time, by 2012, the profits for Abercrombie & Fitch were down to $106 million. Seemingly an astounding amount of money, if you consider, though, that was less than half of what they had been the year before. Jeffries then, after 22 years as an exec, was pay, his pay was cut by 70%, he lost his position at chairman of the board and then by February of 2015 of this year was forced to resign. Robin Lewis, a retail consultant for Jeffries, said this, Mike indelibly linked his entire persona, his soul, to this brand's image. He even tried to make himself look like its customers. He used to run around in ripped jeans and baggy t-shirts. For him, to change the brand would have taken the greatest psychologist in the world. He was a phenomenal man, but he was always creating a movie, the lifestyle story of the image that he wanted to project. Jeffrey's story illustrates for us that good and very good work can quickly become bad and very bad leading us down a, ro a road that identifies us with our work in such a way that it ultimately crushes us. So then, what is the answer? Read Seth Godin. Try a bit harder. Muscle up the energy to work better. The answer for the Christian is the same answer that we attempt to give here week in and week out, and it is the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel refashions and reshapes every aspect of our lives. Here's what I mean when we consider work. Jesus has the ability to refashion and reshape our work. In fact, he entered the world as the incarnate Son of God, as a righteous worker. Consider the fact that the Son of God entered as a carpenter not as a philosopher or a political leader, but he entered as a worker, and he accomplished good and very good work. He did it, not just the tasks that were before him, but the way that he went about his work, he did it perfectly, exactly fulfilling God's righteous law. He did something that you and I will never do, as we are tempted, he was, yet, Hebrews tells us, without sin. He lived the life, his active obedience to the Father lived the life that you could not live. And the good news we profess here, week in and week out, is two glorious realities. This life that he lived that you could not live, one, perfectly satisfied the Father's wrath for your sin. Your sin 
got credited to Jesus on the cross if you were in Christ. The penalty that was rightfully due your sin was poured out on Christ. And secondly, the perfect life that he lived was credited to your account. This is the glorious exchange, the great exchange that theologians speak of. 2 Corinthians 5 most masterfully communicates this idea in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. If you're looking for a verse to memorize, this would be a phenomenal one. The gospel in a nugget. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. He gets your sin, and you get his righteousness. So before God, those of us who have faith in Christ's work stand before him, not qualified by virtue of our moral behavior, but qualified by virtue of Christ's finished work. By virtue of what Christ has done, there is nothing I can do to lose the favor of the Father, nor anything that I did to merit it. So, the fact that my sin is perfectly paid for, forgiven in the cross, and I am clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, seen as perfectly fulfilling the Father's good purposes in this flesh. So what? How does this then shape my work? Far from rendering me passive, the good news actually propels my labors with rocket fuel. The good news of the gospel doesn't render me passive to say, my sin's atoned for, I'm clothed by virtue of Christ's work, therefore where's the hammock? But rather, it sends me back in to God's created design with rocket fuel for obedience. I can gaze at the beauty of Jesus, his perfect work, and that propels me to do what I was originally tasked to do in the garden. Consider Paul's challenge to slaves in Ephesians 6. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Ephesians 5 and 6. It's going to be uh, go almost to the back of your Bibles, through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's a really small letter, just six chapters. Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. Ephesians 5 and 6 puts us in the context that we've talked about a good bit from the stage here at TCC. Classic Paul argumentation. What he does in most of his letters is he's going to scale the heights of the wonder of the gospel in the opening section of the letter. Scale the heights of what God has done to redeem us, to satisfy the Father's wrath, to clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. And then the latter section of his letters are going to be the so what. So by virtue of the fact that this is true, here's what you are to do. So kind of as a summary thesis, look at Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, so we've got this hinge word that ties us back to the gospel, to the good news of what Christ has done, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us 
and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you see this connection woven throughout, right? As we stare at the beauty and the brilliance of what Christ has done, these are the things that are to come out. At the beginning of verse 1, it's be imitators of God. Beginning of verse 2, it's walk in love. By virtue of the gospel truths, these are the things, these are the actions that worship should propel, that should come out as a result of worship. And then he's going to go through in Ephesians 5 and speak to specific groupings of people, wives and husbands specifically at the end of verse 5, or I'm sorry, at the end of chapter 5. And then as we turn our attention to Ephesians 6, he's going to speak to a group of slaves, typical for the culture of that day, beginning in verse 5, Ephesians 6, verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. So, the gospel, the good news truths, have street cred in the actual practices of people who believe those truths. He tells slaves, this is how you are to serve. Now, no one in this room, I, I don't believe, is a slave. Sure, when your alarm goes off at 5 a.m. in the morning or 3 a.m. or whatever time you get up, you may feel like one, but you're not. However, if Paul can say these things to slaves, then we can clearly equate their implications to the modern worker. Whether a clothes-folding stay-at-home mommy or a Chick-fil-A drive-through-my-pleasure-please person or a corporate executive, the motives that would propel a slave to be a good slave propel you and I to be good workers. So let's consider five quick motives for God-glorifying work. Five quick motives for God-glorifying work or for our sermon title this morning, How to Be a Plumber to the Glory of God. Motives for God-glorifying work. Number one, these will all be factual statements made by Paul. In my work, I imitate God. In my work, I imitate God. This is how he begins in Ephesians 5, verse 1, that in our actions, holistically, in all of our life, we imitate God. So while we don't work for our identities, 
we can and should work from our identity. I don't work in order to be pleasing to God, to earn his favor, but by virtue of the fact that I have that, I'm then propelled to work to imitate him. By virtue of the fact that my sin is atoned for and I am seen as fully pleasing to God, I should do excellent work. Excellent work patterned after the excellence of God himself. That I should pour myself into the task of caring for, subduing, and cultivating a world that is distorted by sin. A world that is distorted by sin. And as I do that well, I model a God who does all things well. This is often the plight of modern Christians who are largely, perhaps largely is an overstated reality there, but we have a propensity to fail to produce excellent work and simply do enough to get by. Kitchart, cheap, second-class knockoffs of good secular products abound, whether art, movies, you name it. Where Christians don't render excellent work to God, but rather find themselves passive. Dorothy Sayers says this. I think this is a phenomenal reality. She says, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk, or disorderly in his leisure hours, and to come to church on Sunday mornings. But what the church should be telling him is this. The very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make really good tables. That by virtue of the excellent work of Christ, we should be excellent in whatever we put our hands to. And in so doing, as we are excellent, we imitate a God who is always excellent. Second, in my work, I please God. In my work, I please God. Notice Paul writes this throughout this passage that we just read. We do our work as we would for Christ, or as unto the Lord. The language here is sacrificial language. Old Testament sacrificial system, that this sacrifice would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That my work, my efforts, particularly here, the work of bondservants and slaves, would be rendered to God as a sacrifice. So, you, in whatever domain you have chosen to put your hands to, you work for God. 
work is a fundamental expression of worship and love for God. Praise God, right? That 90,360 hours don't have to be written off as the kind that God doesn't really care about. But in those 90,360 hours, we can fold laundry in a way that pleases God. We can troubleshoot a technological glitz on the computer in a way that pleases God. In a way that is fundamental worship to God. In a very similar fashion to songs that we sing on a Sunday morning. This isn't the sole domain of your worship goes everywhere that you go. So, as a result, Paul writes that you should do it wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. Uh, equate this to your singing. You ever found yourself doing this on Sunday mornings? I know I do. The lyrics are on the screen, and I'm down here, and my mind's kind of mentally distracted. I find myself looking up periodically and humming quite familiar words to songs that I've heard before. And then there'll be a periodic Sunday, I found myself doing this this morning actually, where I feel like I get sucked into the lyrics. Where I can almost close my eyes and, and, and I'm not here in this room. My heart is undistracted. And I enter God's presence in some unique and fresh way. This would be the picture of Paul's exhortation here that we would work wholeheartedly sincere work without cracks the parallel text colossians chapter 3 written uh, almost at the same time as the book of ephesians to different audiences parallel exhortation in colossians 3 22 through 25 paul writes this bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers but with sincerity of heart fearing the lord Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. I, I love that phrase in verse 23, work heartily, wholeheartedly hearted labor. I was reading an a, a author this week that I shared with my small group discussing the plight of uh, modern technology. And she wrote that technology has created a culture of people who give continuous, partial attention to every one of their tasks. I love that language. Continuous, partial attention. It is hard to imagine in a culture of continuous, partial attention or half-hearted work that projects like Augustine's City of God or the Sistine Chapel get done. You don't do those things with continuous partial attention. I've watched this week and Starbucks as uh, students, I won't put a campus name to them, have studied, quote, quote, I put that quite gracefully in quote fingers, with their biochemistry book open here and their cell phone with Facebook open between them and the book, right? Every 32 seconds interrupted by a different text message that they're sending. Friend, you are not studying. You are not doing your work wholeheartedly, right? You are not. 
You are not stewarding the gifts that God has given you, the latent potential that he has put in you and in this good world to create excellence in the things that you are putting your hands to. And we could be guilty of squandering the riches of our day that could be harnessed to expand the glory of God to the nations in ways that other cultures would have dreamed of. We can squander them by continuous partial attention to the task that God has put before us. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart. Thirdly, in my work, I love people made in the image of God. In my work, I love people made in the image of God. Notice he says, I don't do it as eye service or as people pleasers. So I'm not working for people. But I am, on the other hand, rendering service. And this is, by nature, the role of a slave, right? You are rendering service to someone else. And I would argue, actually, that this is the nature and pattern of all good work. Taking the good elements of the created order and harnessing them in a way that you are a blessing to other people taking the good elements of the created order and harnessing them in a way that you are a blessing to others. Work is neighbor love at its best. That by virtue of our work, everyone is consistently giving and receiving all the time. So I'm giving or receiving good coffee. When my potty stops up, I am receiving the neighbor love of someone who is skilled in unclogging my potty. And friends, that is love, right? Whether medicine or law or art, I am harnessing my life to serve my fellow man. Veith writes in one of two books that I'll commend to you this morning, Gene Veith is the author's title. The book is called God at Work. God at Work. It's a phenomenal treatment on this subject. He writes this. This means that our vocation is played out not just in extraordinary acts, the great things that we will do for the Lord, the great successes we envision in our career someday, but in the realm of the ordinary. Whatever we face in our humdrum present, Washing dishes, buying groceries, going to work, driving the kids somewhere, hanging out with friends. This is the realm into which we are called and into which our faith bears fruit in love. We are to love our neighbors. Then he said, that is the people who are actually around us, as opposed to the abstract humanity of the theorist. These neighbors the neighbors that you're washing clothes and folding for, the neighbors that you're training at the gym, the neighbors that you're serving through your engineering degree. These neighbors constitute the relationships we are in right now, and our vocation is for God to serve them through us. Our vocation is for God to serve them through us. We work for the common good of our fellow man. 
in his book, Every Good Endeavor, by author Tim Keller, the second of two books that I said I would mention this morning. Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. Tim is the pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church outside of New York City. Keller pushes back at the quip. No one's going to get to the end of their life and say, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. Keller says, no, but hundreds and thousands of people are going to get to the end of their life and say, man, I wish I'd done more to serve people. The stay-at-home mom will likely face the day when she's not going to have any more kids at home to fold their laundry. And then she's going to run to college to try to get their clothes and bring them home to wash them for them. The retired man is going to long for the day when he could give himself away to something that mattered. And I've spent enough time in a nursing home to know that while people don't say, I wish I'd spend more time in the office, there are a lot of people that wish they could go back and relive the days and spend them in things that actually mattered. So I give my life away to serve people, knowing that this is a fundamental expression of neighbor love. Number four, in my work, I use the gifts of God. In my work, I use the gifts of God. Notice he says, whatever good anyone does, whatever good you do, whatever good you find your, to put your hands to, this is going to be distinct for every one of us in the room. The time of the Reformation, around 400 years ago, was a phenomenal time in the recovery of certain doctrines of the Christian faith. One of those that was most central was the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. This was Luther and Calvin's, one of their fundamental, famous doctrines. This priesthood of believer language, for them, denoted the reality that it wasn't simply the priest in the Roman Catholic Church that had access to God. But rather, by virtue of Christ's sacrifice, all of us who were in Christ had equal access to the Father. But it also had a reverse effect. Luther wrote, all Christians are of spiritual estate. Not only did he mean that we all have access to God, but he also meant that all people have a priestly role to play in life. They bring God to bear in the places that God sends them. They can influence all of life with the sacred. In fact, Luther wrote that vocation, his idea of work was that vocation is God's mask to the world. He used that language to say that God is always at work, always doing things, but the way that he chooses, the instrument that he chooses to use to be a blessing to the world is through human work. So he's quoted as saying this, uh, God himself milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. I love that. This then spurned the Protestant work ethic. That hard work is glorifying to God because it's the mask that God uses to relate to the public. And incidentally, the Reformation was probably the greatest time of cultural influence the church has seen. 
in the last 400 as people were flung out into their domains to exercise their priestly role wherever God has placed them. The reality is all people are given a garden. You work uniquely and strategically in the garden that God has given you. Strategically and uniquely in the garden that God has given you. Now, question, anticipate your objection, but what if what I'm doing now isn't that? I'm cleaning potties and I hate it. I want to give my life away for something strategic and unique to expand the mission of God around the world. Two encouragements. One, if what you're doing now is not what you long to do, one, resist entitlement and labor to please God where he has you now. Resist entitlement and labor to please God where he has you now. I mean, consider the reality. It used to be, if you're a kid, you're going to plow that same field that your great-grandfather plowed. Your daddy's a shoemaker, guess what you're going to be? Shoemaker. You don't have the options that we have in our modern culture. And as a result, many of us are paralyzed by indecision and paralyzed by entitlement. If that is you, spin back to idea number one and recognize that cleaning potties can be done excellently to the glory of God. And perhaps that cleaning of the potty is God's God-given tool for your sanctification at this moment. You need to learn to be faithful and little before God entrusts you with much. And secondly, trust God to position your life. Trust God to position your life. This is why the church is such a gift to you. That you can, by virtue of the community that's around you, make good decisions to give your life away to things that matter. Make good decisions to give your life away to things that matter. That's why I love meeting with a 20-year-old and talking about how does he position the jet on the runway for strategic success in his vocation. It's really hard to talk to a 45-year-old about that. That never had discipleship, never, never had a father speaking into his life, never had anyone steering and positioning. This is God's gift to you. So if you're here and you're in college, you need to be in relationships with people that are in front of you and know you well enough to say, dude, you stink at that. Don't do that. Or have you ever noticed that you're excellent at that? This is God's gift of the church. This is how community plays a role in positioning our lives to give them away strategically for things that matter. And then lastly, last idea. In my work, I await the reward of God. In my work, I await the reward of God. We're told in both the Ephesians text and the Colossians text, that we will receive back from the Lord. Not told specifically what this will be, but that God notices and will reward. As a result, we can work hard and rest well. We can work hard and rest well, knowing that in God's sovereign economy, he is going to position the labors that we pour out to have lasting effect and significance. These things matter. 
2 Peter 3 is a picture that the author paints of the end of the world, how things are going to go down in the end. In 2 Peter 3, verse 8, he writes, Don't overlook the fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that each should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord is like a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. If there is one verse in our New Testament that is most often taken out of context, it could perhaps be this one. The idea being that in the end, God's just going to blow this whole deal up. Right? The Lord's going to return, obliterate it to smithereens. It's all going to be burned. The language here of the biblical author is much better rendered. It's going to be exposed, purified. The purifying effects of, the fi- of fire that would free it from contamination of sin. The reality is that the new heavens are pictured as coming down to earth, an earth that's been purified by, from the contamination of sin. And there, somehow, the good work of cultivation extends into the new heavens and the new earth that it is not all obliterated and reconstructed, but rather it is purified from the effects of sin, and that the good work, the beautiful work, the God-glorifying work, carries over. Somehow our good work extends into the new heavens and the new earth. As we labor to redirect the fallen world in our respective fields, we actively long for the day when God will return and finish this good work that he has started. The story doesn't end with us. This reality is most beautifully recounted in a story told in Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. It is a story of J.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings fame. Keller recounts that at one point in writing the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Tolkien hit an impasse. He was a world-famous scholar in Old English, and if you're familiar with the story, Tolkien's dream was to create the mythical fairy world. Dwarves and elves that he was lamenting had died out from modern culture. And as a scholar of this world, he spent decades of his life languishing over what is a massive project. If you've ever read Lord of the Rings, you recognize the massive project that it is. Creating and building rudimentary forms of culture and language from scratch. By the point that Tolkien pens Leaf of Niggle, his short story, he had spent decades laboring over the Lord of the Rings. And by this point, the many subplots and narratives had all gotten so scattered that Tolkien was scared to death of how to bring them to satisfactory conclusion. Not only that, but World War II had started. And he lamented that he 
was eaten alive by the dreadful and numbing thought that he would never finish the story that he had started. One morning, to distract himself from his labors, Tolkien got up and penned a short story to help him face the reality that he may never finish his work. That same day, the Dublin Review called and asked him for a short story, and Tolkien sent it in by the name Leaf of Niggle. Niggle, the name means to work in a fiddling or ineffective way, to spend time unnecessarily in a host of petty details. The character in Tolkien's short story, Niggle, was a perfectionist akin to Tolkien himself, eat up by the details of the project that he was putting him hands to, which in Niggle's story was simply to paint a leaf. One picture to paint, he had gotten in his mind, the picture of the most brilliant leaf. But when Niggle sat down to paint the picture of this beautiful leaf, he did what Tolkien found that he had done in writing The Lord of the Rings. He started to imagine the story behind the story. And not only did he see the leaf, but now he saw the tree. And then he saw the hillside behind the tree. And then the countryside and the town behind the leaf, behind the tree, behind the hillside. And so Niggle set out to paint the leaf that was now the tree and the hillside and the little town. He sat down and by this point required a vast canvas to be spread out before him that required a ladder to scale the various sides of his canvas. Niggle recounts that from the outset, he knew that a journey awaited him. He had to go somewhere. In the story, it is a long-awaited journey. This journey, clearly, in the story, would be Niggle's impending death. Knowing that death awaited him, Niggle set out to paint this story with a massive canvas sprawling before him, saying, I must finish this before I take my trip. But for two reasons, he never got much done. One, he kept hyper-focusing on painting the most perfect leaf. He'd color it in, shade it in, obsess about it and come back to it the next day. And two, he always got distracted by people. People would come asking him to do things for them. And because Niggle had such a kind heart, he would give himself to them. Therefore, he never got much done. At this point in his short story, Niggle's wife becomes ill. Niggle goes out to to fetch medicine for her, and in the course of wandering about town, catches a fever. Wandering the city side on a cold night, a driver comes to take him on his long-awaited journey to death. Oh, no, Niggle cries. My leaf is not yet finished. Clearly here, Tolkien is anticipating his own fate, leaving Lord of the Rings 80% complete. But Niggle, faced with the impending journey, goes on this journey, traveling to his death. 
the next people to come in the story by the house that Niggle once painted in, and there they find a vast canvas spread out with a ladder and only a small leaf on it. They give that painting to a local museum where it's hung, noticed by only a few eyes in the years that follow. But the story doesn't end there. Niggle's journey takes him on a train through the sprawling countryside. And there, he encounters two passengers. Passenger number one is embodied by justice. And justice tells Niggle, you accomplished nothing in your life. All you have to show for yourself is that one scrawny leaf in a museum that nobody's ever going to see. The other passenger, Tolkien recounts, has a soft voice. It's the voice of mercy. Mercy doesn't say much, but rather mercy takes him out to the countryside of this heavenly city. And there, Tolkien says, before him stood the tree. His tree, finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt and guessed and yet failed to catch. He gazed at the tree, and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift. Here it is. Its beauty is complete, and it will live forever. Keller writes, The reality is, every one of us is niggle. Every one of us imagines accomplishing things, and everyone finds him or herself largely incapable of producing them. Everyone wants to be successful rather than forgotten. Everyone wants to make a difference in this life. But that is beyond the control of any of us. If this life is all there is, then everything will eventually burn up in death at the sun. And no one will even be around to remember anything that's ever happened. Everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference. And all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught. Unless... There is a God. Praise God, there is a God. That our labor is not thorns and thistles and futility, but it is worship to the creator of the universe and is somehow, in splintering array, beautiful to him. I want you to reflect with me as we close. Perhaps that means closing your eyes and stilling your hearts and your affections before we sing. I just have one, one question to hang over us as we close this morning. I want you to think right now about your garden What is it that God has put you on this earth to cultivate? Is that garden overgrown? Does that garden reflect proper worship? 
to God Almighty. Are you painting your leaf? This morning, your heart finds itself cold and calloused. I'm going to give you space before we stand and sing to confess that before God. Knowing as we've recounted in the sermon already that your works don't merit your favor with him. You who are in Christ are perfectly clothed in his righteousness. Righteousness. 